Hi, I'm Leah Potter. And I'm Meredith Roten, and we're two news editors at the GW Hatchet. This is the Hatchet's weekly podcast, Getting to the Bottom of It, covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and GW's campus. I'm here with our culture editor, Lindsay Pollan, who's here to talk about a timeline that she worked on about major events in Black history here at GW. Thanks for coming on, Lindsay. Thanks for having me, Leah. How did you go about creating this timeline? Yeah, so I relied pretty heavily on the Hatchet archives. I spent a lot of time looking through the physical ones that we have and also looking through the ones that um, the university has put up online. And then Gelman has really good resources when it comes to this. A lot of students have delved pretty deep into this topic before, so I relied on their website as well along with a couple of university archives. And when looking through the archive, we started since the mid-1930s when former university president was Cloyd Heck Marvin up until 2019. Tell me about what happened in the 1930s with the former university president. In the mid-1930s, segregation was prominent across all of America and The university was no different. Former president of the university, Cloyd Heck Marvin, actually said in 1938 that he believed that students of any race or color perform best when they're in a homogeneous group. And he also said that the George Washington University does not register colored students. But just a couple years later, about 10 years later, in October of 1946, Lisner Auditorium kind of became this hub for students attending the university trying to stop segregation on campus, specifically at Lisner. A group of Black attendees were denied admission to the first commercial performance at Lisner, um, and it sparked a lot of protests. The National Symphony Orchestra canceled its scheduled tour at Lisner, and the Dramatists Guild of America decided to boycott the venue as well. And so in a November 1946 issue of The Hatchet, um, the former manager of Lisner defended the system of segregation by saying it's no different than all the other places in Washington, the theaters, the restaurants, or the schools generally. Just a couple months later, at a board of trustees meeting in 1947, in February, the board actually decided to desegregate Lisner by voting to allow no restrictions on attendance anymore. And then seven years later, the Supreme Court case Brown versus Board of Education denounced the separate but equal policies and colleges across the country began to fully integrate. And during the height of the civil rights movement, what was happening on GW's campus in terms of student activism? This isn't really student activism, but it kind of plays into like that larger idea of change at the university. So Norman Neverson, who we actually met and spoke with, he was the first black student to receive an athletic scholarship from the university when he was recruited from the football team. And he was talking to my reporter about how before he was at the university, there was kind of two separate Americas. He said that there was a white America and a black America, and they, the two of them never really socialized until 1963 when he was on this campus, the year of the March on Washington, when Martin Luther King Jr. made his speech. He was talking about how he was at the Lincoln Memorial and they were all there together as one team, but like not as football players, but as students together. When he came to GW more than 50 years ago, it was kind of this epic moment when an 18-year-old boy somehow integrated GW, the GW Athletics Department, but to him, he was just saying he was the in the right place at the right time and was kind of able to make 
changes just because of that. Five years after Neverson received his athletic scholarship, the Black Student Union formed its first events on campus in, uh, in celebration of Black History Month, and about 60 Black students went to the first meeting after seeing a sign on G Street. In a 1968 edition of The Hatchet, Peggy Cooper, who founded the Black Student Union, told The Hatchet that she would like to see sororities fully integrated or kicked off campus. And later on, this becomes a pretty hot topic at the university. And so in April 1968, 200 students quietly and peacefully marched to Rice Hall in solidarity with the Black Student Union and its demands for greater educational opportunities for Black students in D.C. In September of 1968, the university hired its first Black professor, Dr. J. Saunders Redding, who taught two literature and history courses at GW. Can you tell me more about what was going on in Greek life during that time? Yeah, so in September of 1968, the University Human Relations Act was established and it barred all student organizations from discriminating membership on the basis of race, religion, or national origin. And this is kind of when problems arose in the Greek community. Kappa Delta was the first sorority to disband on campus in 1968, and by 1972 years later, 10 sororities disbanded because they were unable to comply with the University Human Relations Act. And then five years after the 10 sororities disbanded, the historically black sorority Delta Sigma Theta was established at the university. Since then, how have other aspects of student life changed on campus? So in 1990, the Multicultural Student Services Center was created with a $100,000 allocation from the university. And the former vice president for student and academic support services at GW, Robert A. Chernak, said that it was specifically geared to help minority students, whether they be undergraduate or graduate. I spoke to Michael Tapscott, who has served as the director of the MSSC since 2003, so he's been here for like quite some time. And we were talking about how the role of the MSSC has changed on campus since it started in 1990. And he was telling me more about how even since just he's been here for more than a decade, the MSSC has been able to have a larger impact and create more conversation. They emphasize community building more. They hold diversity trainings for different organizations um, and kind of just serve as a hub for students on campus and serve as a welcoming space for students on campus. Fast forwarding to 2011, the university created its first provost for diversity and inclusion in order to attract students and employers from more diverse backgrounds. And then five years later, the Multicultural Greek Council added four new chapters, including two historically black fraternities, Phi Beta Sigma and Alpha Phi Alpha. Diversity in Greek life continued to be a prominent issue on campus, especially after the Snapchat in 2018, and a lot of changes happened on campus because of that. One of the biggest ones was last September. The Student Association came together to create the Diversity and Inclusion Assembly, which is headed by Jabari Link, who said that this assembly is aiming to help underrepresented and marginalized students have the ability to raise issues and concerns that exist on campus that sometimes might get overlooked by the larger student population or even by the administration. Link also said that he believes that education is one of the best ways to make places more inclusive and 
promote diversity because once you learn about someone, you can include them more. So since the start of the assembly in September, they have successfully hosted four to five listening sessions and there are about 15 essay senators involved along with 15 student leaders. And Link was talking about while he is so proud of everything that he's accomplished so far, it can be a little frustrating that um, the larger campus doesn't seem to care as much. Well, thanks, Lindsay, for sharing this history with us and giving us a rundown of your timeline. Thank you for having me, Leah. I'm here with our student life editor, Sarah Roach, who's here to talk about a lack of advisors in the Center for Student Engagement. Thanks for coming on, Sarah. Yeah, thanks for having me. Tell me what's happening within the CSC in respect to advisors and how is this impacting student groups on campus? About 17 student organizations uh, lost their advisor in the middle of the year. So Dave Marquis, who was an advisor to about 17 student groups, he left in December to take on a new position at the University of Texas in San Antonio. And he left all the student organizations without some like point of contact and all those orgs. They were mostly like art and like theatrical orgs. They were just told to direct all any questions that they had to a generic CSE email. So right now, most of the orgs do, still don't have an advisor, and some of them are pretty big organizations like GW Balance, Humans of GW, uh, Generic at GW. They don't have a direct point of contact from the CSC to sort of facilitate the events that they have planned for the semester, whether it be a show or a recital or for Humans of GW, replacing some of the frames that they have for pictures that they have displayed in the district house basement. So just small things that they, they're they lacking right now, they typically used Marquee to, to help move things along and, and smoothly run their organization. And what are some examples of the student orgs that are impacted by this, and what types of events would they typically need an advisor for? We spoke with GW Balance and the Humans of GW president, and they both said that Right now, they don't necessarily need an advisor like at this current moment. They just haven't been given notice about whether or not they'll have an advisor and and when they would get that advisor assigned. So GW Balance has their fall show and their spring show, and they had Marquee to be able to help facilitate their fall show. But this year, they, they need help with um, getting an on-campus venue and setting up lights and and being able to ticket the event. They don't have a direct point of contact to be able to do that right now. So Humans of GW go use their advisor from the CSC to swap out photos in the, the gallery where they have photos on display in District House. And they haven't been able to do that this semester because they don't have an advisor to facilitate that um, or to approve the new photos that would be in district. So it's just like small things that they that they need their advisor for, but they haven't really gotten any notice about it. A couple of the student orgs we spoke with said they haven't reached out about whether they would get a new advisor. They were sort of just under the impression that they would be assigned one soon. And a couple of the, even though there was a notice sent out from Marquis saying that he was leaving, some of the organizations didn't get that because they transitioned in the middle of the year into new leadership roles. So sometimes like the older leadership may have gotten that notice, but the new leaders did not get that notice so there was sort of just like a time where they were sort of in, in in flux and they didn't know whether or not they were going to have an advisor and it took them a little bit of time to figure out that they that they don't right now and what did Marquis say when you reached out to him about this 
Marquis said that he, at the time, he had overseen 17 student organizations. Nine of them were already assigned a new advisor, and eight of them do not have an advisor. And he said he's not really worried about whether or not the, the new ones will get an advisor because a lot of them are self-sustaining and they're, they didn't really need that much oversight. But it's also not in his job description now that he's gone to ensure that these student organizations have an advisor. It's more on the CSE to make sure that happens. So he has sort of been out of the loop since he's left and moved on to a new university. Well, thanks for coming on, Sarah, and be sure to keep us updated about advisors in the CSE. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me. This week, I'm here with reporter Tio Vista Daniel, who worked on a story this week about a new survey for the library's writing center. Can you tell us more about it? The writing center directors and one of the writing consultants noticed that there was lower return rates after freshman year and were curious about why that was and launched a survey to see what are the possible reasons and to maybe use it to find marketing tools to attract them, retain them. So what kind of questions are they asking on this survey? Uh, The survey ranges from what were their goals to coming to the writing center, uh, rating how well the writing center assisted them, and were they going to consider coming to the writing center again to see if it was just they no longer needed the writing center or that they weren't thinking about it as a tool to help them because the writing center is often advertised or spoken about in freshman classes with the UW classes etc so they're trying to just see the mindset of sophomores and juniors. Dr. Hayes actually spoke to me about some of the problems that they're facing in trying to retain freshman or senior and just their questions about why it is sophomores or juniors don't come as often as freshmen and seniors. Here's this group of students who use us a lot as freshmen and then decline. And is that decline because they're accustomed to college writing now um, and so feel like they've got their feet under them and they don't need us anymore? But then what about those moments when they're like working on a senior capstone project and they've never written in that genre before, right? They seem to have forgotten that we could be here for them. And so we want to remind them of that. So obviously they just released this, so they don't have the results yet, but do they have any ideas about why this might be? Right now it's, uh, it would be speculation. They're really unsure, and that's honestly the, re- the main reason that they're launching the survey. They've noticed the pattern, and it's apparent from their retention rates from 2016, 17, 18, but Dr. Hayes and Dr. Ryder both noticed it, and so did one writing consultant, Gabriel Falk, and they are trying to address it. So what was the development process like for the survey? Gabriel Falk, who is the main person who created the survey, just saw the pattern. It was sort of understanding by data, and after seeing the pattern in the data, they thought, we need to come up with something, we need to see what it is, and the questions were based off of what they believed would be Uh, the best way to find the retention problems. And it's very similar to the questions that they ask after a writing appointment. Are they going to do anything after the survey results come back in, like more focus groups or interviews or anything like that? Dr. Hayes and Ryder both said that they can't make any specific tools that will be made or service changes, but they will be using the results of the survey as a tool to market themselves better to 
sophomores and juniors, although that's not apparent yet. But after the results of the survey, they hope to change the tools that they're using or even developing a tool. They've also spoken about a possible multiple a survey after this one. How many people are they hoping participate in this? The survey was originally sent out to 500 people. We haven't gotten any information on response rates, but they've said that there has been a decent amount of response and they're hoping that with a second reminder, more people will be willing to participate. Thanks for giving us an update on the Writing Center. Absolutely, it was great talking to you. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us on Getting to the Bottom of It. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by news editors Meredith Roten and Leah Potter and features culture editor Lindsay Pollan. This podcast is produced by managing editor Matt Cullen and video editor Ariana Dunham. Music is produced by Olk Studio. Special thanks to Tio Bista Daniel and Sarah Roach for joining us. See you next week.